Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 2, and we will be in verse 18. Um, and the word of the Lord reads, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the, gr- the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Now, there are times when we come to the text and uh, we read scripture, and uh, when you read it, it just will just leap off the page at you. It'll, it'll speak right to you. The truth that's being communicated is right there on the surface. It's, it's, it's easy to grab a hold of. It's, it's, it's just immediate. Like the scripture uh, of Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is a very simple, clear truth. All people, no matter who they are, have sinned. All people have fallen short of the glory of God. There's not any ambiguity in that text. It's right there on the surface. Or, or how about Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's not any mystery about what, what's being said there. God was there before anything else existed, and he created it all, everything, the heavens and the earth. Or how about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, but it is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, Again, a very clear understanding that we have. You were saved by not what you do. You're not saved by the rules that you follow. You're not saved by, by the religious you know, uh, traditions that you try to uphold. You are saved by the gift of God that he has given you, which is grace through faith. It's a very clear, very simple truth. It's right there on the surface. It's easy for us to understand. There's lots of truths in the Bible that are like that, but then there are texts like the one that we have today or you read them, and you're like, um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what that means, right? I mean, I, I, I kind of feel like I know what it means. I mean, I kind of got a hint, but, but I really can't articulate it because it's not so clear. I mean, we start off talking about, you know, fasting, which I kind of understand, like, you know, don't eat for a period of time. But then, but, but then we start talking about bridegrooms and weddings, and I do kind of get that too, right? But then suddenly we're talking about, you know, you know, cloth being sold on old cloth and new wine in old wineskins, and we end up with cloth being torn and, and wineskins being burst, and I have no idea what in the world is going on anymore, right? I mean, I, mean, I kind of have a feeling, right, but I can't seem to connect all the dots and make all the pieces fit together, right, in this text. Have you, have you ever felt that way before about a text? Right, okay. I know that I have many, many times. Well, praise the Lord that, uh, that, that he gives us insight. Um, there are just those texts in Scripture that when you read them, the meaning isn't right there on the surface, and that you kind of have to dig in in order to get what, what God's communicating. And, and this is one of those texts and so before we actually kind of like dive in and look at the text, let me just help you out right up front. I'm just going to bottom line 
for you what the point of this text is. And the point of this text is Jesus changes everything, right? Jesus makes all things new is another way to say it. That's the point of this text. Jesus didn't come to restore the old. He didn't come to remodel the the old way of doing things. He didn't come to make you a better version of who you are. He came to change everything. He came to make old things new. And we will see that as we go through the text. But before we jump into the text, let me just help you to kind of get your bearings straight by reviewing the context of where we are. We're in a series uh, in the Gospel of Mark titled Following Jesus. And the reason why we're in this series is because the Gospel of Mark is a very fast-moving narrative that really focuses not so much on what, what, what Jesus taught, though it, it does talk about that, but, but it focuses more on, on what Jesus did. It's an action-packed record of how Jesus lived his life and how he interacted and treated other people. And as followers of Christ, the Gospel of Mark is a great resource for us to learn to be more like Jesus in our actions and our attitudes. It's a great gospel for us to read as we, 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 we strive to be the disciples of Jesus Christ. And we, this morning, you know, are... Uh, We're not quite to the end of chapter 2, and what we find is there's already a lot that's happened. Mark begins his gospel declaring the divine nature of Christ by calling him the Son of God. And then throughout the rest of Mark, he begins to prove just that. Jesus at his baptism comes out of the water, and, and God the Holy Spirit descends upon him visibly like a dove. And God the Father you know, speaks to him from heaven and says, you're my son in whom I'm well pleased. And in that, that, that little section in the very beginnings of chapter one, we see already the picture of the Trinity. All three members of the Godhead are present in time and space. Then Jesus goes off into the wilderness to spend 40 days being tempted by the devil. And this is the first of many conflicts that you will see that he will have with the spiritual forces of darkness recorded in Mark. And then right after that, he begins his ministry authoritative declaring, authoritatively declaring that the time is now, the kingdom is here, and that you, that you need to repent and believe the gospel. And Jesus took this message to the towns and all the communities around the Sea of Galilee. And soon, he calls his first disciples. And shortly after that... He begins preaching in synagogues, and and people are astounded by the authority with which he's preaching. And then soon he demonstrates his authority by casting out demons and showing that he has power over the spiritual world and that he is also healing people and those who are sick and lame, proving that he has power over the physical world as well. And then, in an incredible story, four men tear off the roof of Peter's house so they can lower their friend, a paralytic, down to Jesus so he can heal him. And Jesus then uses this situation to not only heal this man, but also to demonstrate he has the power to forgive sins because he is God in the flesh. Because who else, as they ask the question, can forgive sins but God alone? And if that wasn't shocking enough, um, and, and startling enough, Jesus was not only, you know, has the ability to forgive, but then he is willing and he is able to forgive the sins of the worst kind of sinners, which is demonstrated, right, when he called Levi a tax collector, which was really on par with being a murderer or a rapist, right? He calls Levi to follow him. Jesus saves and makes disciples even out of the worst of the worst kinds of sinners, which means that there's not anybody, there's not anybody that's beyond redemption. No one. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you have done, no matter what's, ha- what, what, what's happened to you, you can be forgiven. And the result of this was for Levi, or, or Matthew, um, 
was to, for him to have a great feast for Jesus. And at this feast, there were many tax collectors and there were many sinners having dinner with Jesus because this was a celebration of Levi's salvation. It's a celebration of his new life. And it was also an introduction by Levi to his friends. They wanted, he wanted his friends to hear the gospel as well. But it was also Levi's farewell party because Levi was leaving behind his old life to follow Jesus Christ, which is a picture of repentance. And, and we... And as we saw, the, the, the Pharisees, they didn't like that. They, they didn't approve of Jesus spending time with and eating with sinners. They didn't approve of his willingness to befriend them. In fact, as Jesus was beginning to, to be in conflict with not only the demonic forces of darkness, but now he's beginning to be in conflict with pow a powerful group of men known as the Pharisees, a religious group of men in the Jewish faith who had a lot of political power, and they desired, sincerely, they desired to be right with God, but they believed that salvation was the result of their own ability to faithfully keep the law of God. And they were men of great piety and great devotion and strict obedience to the law. And they lived not only by the law of Moses that they're found in the, the first five books of the Bible, but they also set a, a, a list of strict traditions to help, that were designed to help them keep the law of Moses. And Jesus' message of repentance and faith and, and forgiveness didn't resonate with them. In fact, it offended them because, because who is this man who breaks these traditions that, that, has, that has been developed over centuries. And, and when Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins, they thought, well, he's blaspheming. And when Jesus spent time with and, with and ate with the sinners, they thought, well, how can this man who claims to be God be close to the worst of the worst kind of sinners, all the while not even recognizing that they, as religious as they were, were just as lost as the tax collectors. They may have been very religious and careful not to and careful to follow all the rules, but their hearts were just as corrupt as these worst sinners that Jesus was hanging out with. But they couldn't see that. They sincerely thought that they were morally superior to these other people, and they thought that they were spiritually better off, which really then is the motivation for the text that we see today. Look at verse 18, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now what we need to understand right from the beginning is, is really, in the, according to the law of Moses, there was, it only required one fast per year. There was only one event that happened every year that they were required to fast according to the law of Moses, and that was the Day of Atonement which was the time of year where the high priest was finally allowed to go into the most holy place. If you understand how the temple works, only the priests were even allowed inside the temple itself. You had to be Jewish to be in the outer court of the temple, right? But, but inside the temple, it was divided into two rooms. You had the holy place where, where priests were allowed, and you had the most holy place that had the, the Ark of the Covenant, and, and, the, um, and you had then the, the, the judgment seat of God on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And no one was ever allowed in there except one time a year. A man was, after a ritual washing, was finally able to go in there and sprinkle blood on the judgment seat of the Ark of the Covenant, making atonement for the sins of Israel. One time of year, which is a shadow, really, of, of, the, of Christ's atoning sacrifice that he does once and for all. And, and, and this was the only time of year that was really required under the law of Moses itself 
to fast. Now, people certainly did fast for other reasons, and, and, there, and there are causes to do so, such as sorrow, repentance, um, humility, and even self-denial. Sometimes you deny yourself so you can draw closer to God. But these were not required. These were not compulsory. These were not something that you had to do, right? The only required fast until the nation of Israel was taken into exile was the Day of Atonement. Now, after the Jews came back from exile, then they were, they were added four other fasts. And then there was also the fast that, uh, of Purim that, that is found in the book of Esther. If you remember, uh, Esther fasted because she was trying to seek God's will Right, and how that she could intervene to keep um, uh, Nahum from destroying the, the Jews that lived there. And so by the time that Jesus began his ministry, there were six fasts right, and, and, uh, for the Jewish people. But, but none of these are what's being talked about here. None of these fasts correspond with the timeline here. You see, the Pharisees, in their efforts to do everything they can do to keep the law and to win favor with God, right, for them, six fasts a year was not enough. And so what they did is they fasted Twice a week as well. Twice a week they fasted on Mondays as if Monday isn't bad enough as it is, right? right? They, they fasted on Mondays and they also fasted on, on Thursdays. Praise the Lord, I'm not a Pharisee. Right? But they did this every week, every single week. And again, the reason for that is because, because they saw that this was a sign of being super devoted, super spiritual, that I'm really, de- look at me, I'm really devoted to God. Now, John, the Baptist disciples, though, they were, they were also fasting at the time, but, but, but they were probably fasting for different reasons. Um, the specific reason isn't like talked about in the actual text, but many, um, many scholars think that it's, it's one of two reasons. Either they were fasting because they were in sorrow because their leader, John, was in, in prison, or they were fasting and praying, waiting for the Messianic age to begin because they didn't get the memo. Like, they didn't actually understand that it actually began. And most scholars think it was probably the second reason, which, you know, the second reason is most likely. But in either case, what it tells us is that there were people who followed John the Baptist at the time that didn't actually make the transition over from John to Christ. There were people who followed John the Baptist that didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, even though that John himself declared him to be that. And, and, and as a side note that's kind of important, right, because when we read the text about this, these people, we tend to look down on just the Pharisees for their unbelief, not realizing that a lot of people in every part of society at the time were blind to the fact of who Christ was. The Pharisees were certainly blind to it. There were many sinners that were still blind to it. And, and even some of John the Baptist's followers, people that are supposed to be kind of really like in the know, they were blind to it as well. And this is important because many people think, like I know that I've thought probably, Many of you have probably thought to yourselves that, you know, if I was there, then I would certainly be one of the ones that would actually recognize that, that Jesus was who he, who he is, right? But the reality is, is, is we're looking back, you know, with a different lens, and it's kind of borderline arrogant of us, because the truth is, we'd probably be just like the majority, just kind of doing life and, and kind of blind to what was, what was happening with, with Christ. It's only by the grace of God that we have the full understanding that we have today and that we have the historical vantage point that we have today to be able to look back and see those things. And it's only actually then by the grace of God that we actually have the eyes to see the truth. But the point of verse 18 is the Pharisees and John's disciples were fasting, and Jesus and his disciples were not. In fact, they were doing the opposite. They were feasting. They were having, they were having dinners with 
sinners and tax collectors. They were celebrating. They were eating good. Try tip every night or something like that. Right? And, and this, this really bothered both of these groups of people. I shouldn't have said try tip. I just became hungry like right now, you know? <laughs> But, it, but this bothered both of these groups of people because, because if Jesus is the Son of God, if he's, he's, if he's so spiritual, then why doesn't he fast like them? If he was so spiritual, why doesn't he encourage his disciples to live up this higher religious standard that had been set by others who come before them? Why wouldn't he and they obey the rules that were established over the centuries of traditions? Again, at least the Pharisees saw themselves as morally superior. They saw themselves as the example of what it takes to have a right relationship with God. And they were like, who does this Jesus think he is? He says he can forgive sins, but he then eats with them sinners. Right? And he doesn't even teach his disciples to fast twice, twice a week like us. I mean, we're the real followers of God. Who does this guy think he is? And then, and then in verse 19, J Jesus really answers the question, but he, but he does so again in classic Jesus style, in a way they don't expect. He said to them, can a wedding, can a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with him? As long as they have the bridegroom with him, they cannot fast. Now notice that Jesus doesn't argue with them about their traditions, and, right? He doesn't, he doesn't argue with them about, about, about the man-made traditions that they have and why they think that they, sh they, they should fast, but instead he begins to talk about the celebration of a wedding. Right? He's somewhat changing the subject because in that culture, weddings were a reason to celebrate. In fact, wedding celebrations lasted for several days, and, and weddings were a time of great joy. It was a time of great feasting, not fasting. And, and the idea of, of fasting during that kind of an event would be ridiculous. In fact, the idea of fasting and not participating in the celebration would have been seen as insulting and even offensive. It's just way, way, way out of place. And what Jesus is saying is fasting and mourning is out of place for my disciples because I'm with them. I'm the reason why they celebrate. I'm the reason why they have joy. All of Israel has been longing for my appearing, and, and here I am now. I'm, I'm bringing healing to the sick. I'm casting out demons. I forgive sins. I bring the worst kinds of sinners to repentance and faith in the gospel. I'm the hope of, of, that everyone has been waiting on, so of course they're going to celebrate. This is a time in the world that everybody's been waiting on. In fact, the idea of a wedding uh, that Jesus refers to here really has end times implications. It's, it's pointing to, it's a shadow of the celebration of when Christ comes back for his bride, the church. Now, I do understand the truth is that these guys didn't know anything about that because the book of Revelation hadn't been written yet. But they were certainly looking forward to, in their own theology, the messianic banquet, the, the celebration of when the Messiah sets all things right. And that's what this wedding points toward. Everyone, including the Pharisees, were looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promise to set all things right. A time when the world will have moved from the age of the promise, where God's promising to make things right, to the age of fulfillment when he begins to actually do that. But the thing is, they couldn't see that's exactly what's happening. Right? Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, was, was here. Right? Jesus was, was telling them, I am the bridegroom. Right? And, and as long as, as the bridegroom is here, then there is no cause at all to fast or to mourn. 
The only appropriate response when you're in the presence of Christ is, is joy and celebration. When Christ saves you from your sin, the natural response you should have is joy. You've been set free. And I promise you, all of you, if you are in Christ, right, celebration and joy will be your natural response when you go to be home with him. When you're standing in his glorious presence, you will celebrate and rejoice like you never have before. You will not mourn. In fact, in Revelations it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Because all of your hope will be fully realized in Jesus. And then, and then there certainly will be no cause for mourning and fasting then. Now understand, Jesus isn't saying that there isn't even a reason in this life to mourn and fast. Right? Jesus fasted for 40 days. Now that's really the only fast that's ever mentioned. That You don't ever hear about Jesus having a one-day fast or a weekly fast. It's the 40 days. And by the way, I wouldn't recommend doing that your first time fasting. Actually, it's really bad for your health to do that. But Jesus wasn't opposed to fasting. In fact, in verse 20, he says that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, Jesus, again, says something that, that surprises everyone. When you really read this with, like, first century eyes, you've got to understand that this was a surprising um, uh, turn of phrase for him. Because a wedding celebration doesn't normally end with a bridegroom being taken away. How do wedding celebrations normally end? When all the guests go home, that's how, how a wedding, right? And so Jesus is, is making a pointed statement here, right? Which, you know, you, you would have expected him to say that, that, hey, when all the guests go home, then, then there'll probably be time to mourn. But no, he's saying something different. He says, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And, and this isn't, it's not quite so apparent in the English, but the, but the Greek really kind of points to this. The fact that the bridegroom in this statement is actually is forcefully taken away is really kind of the idea behind it. In fact, it kind of implies a sense of, of violence here. And so what Jesus is obviously doing is he is now making his first allusion to his, his death, being God. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what course he's going to run. And now he's beginning to plant the seeds so they can remember him talking about this. He will be taken away from his disciples by force, and he will be handed over to the Pharisees, he will then be turned over to Rome and they will nail him to the cross and he will die. And so there will literally be coming a time for mourning and sorrow and, and fasting will be appropriate then for the, for the disciples because he will be taken away from them. Jesus, the, the perfect sinless lamb of God, will be tortured and killed. And, and not because of what he's done, but because of the sins of mankind. He will die for their sins. But not only their sins, but also your sins and mine. Which, by the way, is the reason why anyone should mourn and fast. It's one of the reasons. If there's a reason in your life that you should mourn and fast, it was because of your sin. Your sin should break your heart. If you truly understand what sin is and what it costs to pay for your sin, it should break your heart. The ugliness of sin should drive you to your knees in sorrow because, because without Christ... Without Jesus, it's going to cost you everything. Eventually, it will cost you everything. It will cost you your family and all that you love. It will cost you your wealth and all that you possess and all you've ever accumulated in your life. It will cost you all your friends and all your relationships. It will cost you all the opportunities that you've ever had. 
because one day you will be consigned into a hopeless darkness in the pit of hell because of your sin if you have not Christ. It will cost you everything. That should cause you to mourn. But if you have Christ, even if you have Christ, you should still mourn over your sin because the forgiveness of sin came at a horrific cost. God the Father crushed his only son. He was pleased to crush him because of your sin. Christ was beaten to a bloody pulp for you. He hung there on the cross in the desert sun, dehydrated, suffocating, suffering under the wrath of the holy and righteous God for you. And so, Christian, when you fall into sin, you should mourn. You should sorrow. And then you should repent and believe the gospel even more. And so Jesus was saying, as long as I'm here, there is no need to mourn and fast. Because when I am taken away, there will be a time to mourn and fast. But not for the reasons why you self-righteous Pharisees think. My disciples are not going to mourn and fast because of the way that you think. My disciples and followers will, will not mourn because they're trying to, to hypocritically earn favor with God by following some man-made rules. They will rightly mourn over their sin and their inability to do anything about it. And, and the awesome cost of their sin is why they're going to mourn. And then he says, the strangest thing. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment? What? If he does, the patch tears away, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And then, in, in no one puts new wine uh, in old wineskins? If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. The new wine is for fresh wineskins. I kind of wish I, I could, could have at least been there at some time to see people's facial expressions when he said things and be like, what? Now what Jesus is doing here, just to make it clear, is that he's using parallel parables. And, and, and what he's doing is just making a point. What he's talking about, and this is important for us to understand, is, is he's not you know, talking about two different things. Let's not get tangled up in the details here. He's not talking about two different issues. He's talking about the same thing. He's just, he's just saying the same thing using two different illustrations to make his point. And what he's saying is simply this, all right, that the old cloth and the old wineskins are both representations of the old traditions of the Pharisees that the Jews had been following. It's an image of the worn-out religious system that they were holding on to. It's a religious system that is in tatters, and it's falling apart. It's a religious system like old clothes and old wineskins, really that's not good for anything anymore. And the new cloth, then, and the new wineskins are the representation of the gospel. God's new revelation in salvation history. It's the teaching that the kingdom is here, and the way into the kingdom is through repentance and faith and, and following Jesus Christ. And what Christ is saying is that if you try to take that old religious system and combine it with the gospel, just like, like, like old cloth and new cloth and, and new wine and old wineskins, if you try to take the gospel and make it fit these old traditions, you're going to have a mess on your hands, is really what he's saying. It, it, just like, like new cloth will tear away from an old garment and new wineskins will burst old, old 
mean, new wine will burst old wineskins. The gospel cannot be contained by this old religious system. If you try to force them together, right, what you're going to end up with is something that's destructive. The old cloth will be torn worse. The, the wineskins will burst, and the new wine itself will be, will be ruined. And this is a picture of the destructive nature of false religions. You see, Jesus didn't come to patch up the old way of doing things. He didn't come to make improvements to the old religious system. He didn't come to remodel the old. He came to make it new. He came to change it. He came to tear it all down and replace it with something new. The new covenant, the new covenant with which he paid for with his blood. The gospel is the new era in salvation history. Not a continuation of the old system. It's not a remix of us, of, of, of keeping Pharisaic rules that has been, been practiced for centuries. It's, it's not even a rehash of the old sacrificial system, but rather a fulfillment of that sacrificial system. And, and, and through the new cloth and the new wine, this new covenant, the gospel, brings now a brand new relationship with God. Because what happened when Jesus died? The veil was torn. And, Jesus, and God doesn't abide anymore in temples made by hands of stone. God abides now in the hearts of believers it's a new relationship, a radically new relationship. And not only God has, has God, you know, is, and not only is, is the gospel new, so are those who put their trust in him. Because the gospel, right, through the gospel, God isn't making you a better version of who you are. He's not taking you and making you 2.0. You're being made into something new. Who you were in Christ, who you were before you came to Christ, was a spiritually dead wretch in open rebellion to God. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has radically changed you. Think about how this is expressed in the Bible over and over again. You have a heart of stone has been replaced with a new heart of flesh. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. Now you are made alive in Christ. You've been born Again, you've experienced a new birth, a radical transformation in your nature. The old of you has died, the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. He's making you brand new. Jesus makes all things new. And Jesus points this in this text, is you cannot take the new creation and combine it with the old stuff. It won't work. The gospel of Jesus Christ is incompatible with works-based self-righteousness. The two cannot be combined without destroying them both. The gospel is completely incompatible with any notion of works-righteousness. You cannot take the gospel and add anything to it. Because when you do, it's no longer the gospel. So you can't take the gospel and add to it mandatory fasting. You can't take the gospel and add to it mandatory circumcision. You can't take the gospel and add to it mandatory diet restrictions, praise the Lord. Or mandatory pilgrimages to the temple. Or mandatory tithes. Though some preachers won't tell you that it is. You can't take the gospel and add to it penance. Or purgatory. Or indulgences. Or the veneration of Mary and the saints. You can't take the gospel and add to it priestly confessions. 
You can't take the gospel and add to it temple recommends and baptism for the dead and sealing ceremonies and, and, and a burning sensation in your bosom. You can't take the gospel and add to it the mandatory works to go door to door, knocking on people's doors, handing out literature, and then you know, re refusing to let people celebrate birthdays and, and Christmas. You can't have the gospel and any set of rules that is mandated for you to follow in order to make God love you because, because the gospel tells you God already loves you. He already loves you. And he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you before you could do anything about it. God's love is demonstrated that Christ died for sinners. All you need to do is repent and believe the gospel. The gospel cannot be combined with an old religious system you know, that the Pharisees were trying to hold on to of works righteousness. In fact, a simple way to remember this is this. The gospel plus anything else equals not the gospel. It's as simple as that. You take the gospel of Jesus Christ as we understand it, that you're a sinner saved by grace, that you acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner, that you repent and believe it, that Jesus died on the cross for you and that you're holding on to that truth. You take that gospel and try to add anything else to it, you no longer have the gospel. And that's what Jesus is really driving at here. He has come to make all things new, including us. And we need to repent of our old ways of doing things and our old religious systems and our old superstitions and simply trust in the atoning work on the cross. We need to believe that Jesus is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and we need to trust that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save us from our sins and then rest in him. Trusting in his ability to save us from the penalty of our sin, from the power of sin, and then ultimately the presence of sin. And Jesus makes it clear that the gospel is incompatible with any other religious system in the world, including the religions of the Pharisees and any religion that denies the deity of Christ and any religion that makes you obey some list of rules that you have to follow in order to be saved. The gospel, the good news, is that God himself came into the world to save sinners. He came to rescue sinners, which means, I want you to hear this, is he came to rescue you. And he has the power over the physical world, and he has power over the spiritual world, and he has power to forgive sins, and he has traded places with you on the cross, and he bore the wrath of God that you deserve, paying for your sins, and then in return, he gives to you the righteousness, his righteousness, so that you can stand before God, unafraid, unashamed, because you have been given a brand new set of robes of his righteousness, and you have been made clean by the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus, after dying on the cross three days later, rose from the grave, and he proved that all this is true without beyond a shadow of a doubt. His sacrifice completely atoned for your sins. And Jesus, now, at this moment, is at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for you. He knows you, and he is interceding for you with God the Father. Which, and also, Christ has already prepared a place for you. And so when you finally draw your very last breath, he will come to take you home to be with him as he's promised. To live with him forever and all those who have died in Christ beforehand. And if that weren't enough, and I'm telling you brothers and sisters, that's enough. 
I'm telling you, that's enough. But if that weren't enough, God sent his Holy Spirit to come to live inside of you and to guide you and to lead you and to comfort you and to strengthen you and encourage you in this life. If you're in Christ, you certainly have a reason to celebrate. You have a reason to rejoice in who Jesus is. He is your hope. And what Jesus is saying in this text is that this good news simply cannot be contained in the busted old system. So walk away from it. Walk into the light. Jesus changes everything. And he makes all things new. Now, before we wrap up, there's a couple things I want to point out. Number one, I need to be really clear here. This does not mean the law of God as given in the Old Testament, has been abolished. Because, man, many of us want it to be. Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. The law of God still stands. The law of God, God's moral law, still applies to all of us, every single one of us. But understand, right? this doesn't mean that we need to be like the Pharisees where we're trying our best to try to keep these laws in order to gain God's approval. No, the law is a mirror. Now, and if there's any reference to the law that you understand, if, you, if people ask you questions, what about the law? Just remember this, the law is a mirror with which we see ourselves. It's God's perfect mirror with which we see ourselves. And what we see in the mirror is we are incapable of keeping this law in our own strength. People say, they ask the question, what's the gospel? The gospel is to love God and love others. That's the law. Because you can't do that on your own. Right? Jesus said, that's reflected in, that it reflects the entire law and the prophets. Loving God and loving others is not something you have the power by yourself to do. You can't keep the law in your own strength. And the law reminds us of that. The law is a reminder that we've fallen short of God's perfect standard. And since we've fallen short, we desperately need what? Forgiveness. The law reminds us that we need salvation, that we need Jesus, that we are completely dependent upon his finished work on the cross, and we are depending on the Holy Spirit to come and change us and to shape us into the image of Christ, that we're depending on the Holy Spirit to come make us able to be obedient because we can't do it on our own. The law will continue to remind us to depend on Jesus, and it will continue to keep us humble lest we ever begin to think that somehow we got it all together and that we're perfect or better than someone else. So the law has a role to play in our lives. The law is God's righteous standard, but it is, it is not the way for us to be made right with God. It's, the only way for us to be made right with God is to put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone. The only way to be right with God is to receive the gift of eternal life through faith in Christ because he is the one that has the power to make us new. Now finally, with this, it's really coming down to what are you going to do with this? Christ has come to make all things new. He's torn down the barrier between you and him. He's torn down the religious system that keeps you from him. All that's left is to recognize that you are covered in your sin and mourn over that sin and your inability to do anything about it and then repent and believe the gospel. Repent 
and turn away from your sin and believe and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, trusting him to make you new. And when you've trusted Christ, and when you've put your hope in him, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice in the one who loved you so much that paid the price that set you free. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I rejoice in your word and the reminder daily that it is not by my power that I can have a relationship with you. That I'm broken and flawed as I am, but Father, you love me. All I have is, is Christ. All I have is to continue to, to turn away from sin and turn towards you, to repent and believe, repent and believe. That's all I have, Lord. But you, Lord, are enough for me. You are enough, Father, to give my life meaning. You're enough to give me all the hope I could ever need to sustain me through the darkest trials in the world. Father, I praise you, Lord, that you and this gospel has made it new, that I don't have to, Lord, wake up in the morning with a checklist of things I need to do to make you love me and approve of me, hoping that at the end of the day that I got it all right and that somehow, way, I didn't mess it up. Because, Lord, I know me. I'm going to mess it up. Father, I praise you that my salvation doesn't depend on me because if it did, I'd already be lost a thousand times over. And, Father, I pray that you'd impress this truth upon our hearts, Lord, that you didn't come to take the old religious system and rehash it. You came to make it new. And then because of that, because we can trust in you, we can rejoice in you. And certainly, Lord, there are times for us to fast, but ultimately, Lord, we're called to live in the joy of our relationship with you. You're to be our greatest desire. And I pray, Father, all of our hearts may move that way. And Father, that you'd raise up a people in this place who are so sold out for the gospel, Lord, that they would go out into the community, in the world, and share this truth with their neighbors and their friends. They would not be ashamed. They would be unafraid, Father God, to tell people, you need Jesus. I thank you for that. And I thank you for all that are here, Lord God. And I pray, Father God, that you are glorified in our midst. Christ name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.